Good morning. It is Friday, May 17th, 2013. This is Chickie Fitzgerald, the host of the Executive Girlfriends Group Show. And we are really, really going to have a treat this morning because we have got a topic that we have not touched on, uh, I, I don't think, ever uh, in the five years that the Executive Girlfriends Group has been in existence. And the book that we're going to talk about this morning is called The Female Vision, Women's Real Power at Work. And the author of that book, or actually one of the co-authors, is Sally Helgeson. Sally, welcome. Thank you, Chickie. It's a joy to be here with you. Sally, most of our authors uh, have a day job and, and certainly have a life before becoming an author. Now, I know you are an internationally acclaimed author and that you're also a speaker and consultant, but why don't you talk to us about kind of your genesis in the business world and what brought you to the place where you really started honing in on the differences between men and women and how they behave in the business world? Certainly. Well, for the last 25 years, I have been writing about and researching women as leaders in the workplace. Uh, so that has been pretty much my full-time job. I've written six books. Some are specifically about women's, women leaders. Some are more general leadership books. And I do a lot of speaking and some consulting. So that's how I make that work. I got interested in that uh, 25 years ago. It came about very much through my own experience. I was working in corporate communications. Uh, this is in the mid-late 80s. Uh, I've been in, uh, had some, uh, done some journalism before that. And uh, I was fascinated to try to figure out what I needed to do in corporate communications to be successful. What I saw were all men around me at that time. <laughs> and uh, so I started reading a lot of books about what women needed to do to get successful. And although I learned a lot, I found that everything that I was reading had a negative focus. You know, women hadn't played football, so we didn't understand teamwork. And we'd squandered our lives playing house or dolls and, and didn't really have anything to contribute in the big world. So uh, that experience uh, inspired me to start a research project so I could try to look at and define and articulate what women had to contribute as leaders rather than how they needed to change and adapt. And in the process of interviewing women who'd been very successful as leaders, that research uh, later became the book, The Female Advantage, Women's Ways of Leadership. And uh, that was the first book to take a positive look at what women had to contribute. So it pretty much started me off. Uh, people started calling me to speak or to consult, and uh, I just found the field endlessly fascinating and stayed with it. Well, you know, I mentioned at the beginning of the show that this is a topic we haven't uh, touched on, and, and what I'm referring to there is this whole topic of vision and how vision. women actually see differently. And the other books that you've written that have talked about, you know, the difference in leadership styles, I mean, those are things that we talk about frequently. But mm -hmm. I think your new book really mm -hmm. hits on something incredibly important. And as I was thinking about the show this morning, I was thinking about, you know, most of us remember Mel Gibson's uh, movie, What Women Want, where he had the uh, incredible fortune or misfortune, depending <laughs> on your perspective, of, of having a couple of days of being able to uh, hear 
how women think. And of course, the movie portrayed uh, not so much the the, pers- or the professional side of things, but really the personal side of things of worrying about how we look and uh, you know, uh, are, are we dressed right or do we fit in right or what? You know, do we really have a right to be at the table? All all those uh, that that negative uh, speak in in our our heads. And what you're talking about here isn't that, although I'm sure that that plays a role, but it's really how women's vision, how they see a situation, a circumstance, uh, is through a very, very distinctive lens. And and I, I find this incredibly fascinating. So why don't you just share what what it was that, that oh, okay. opened this to you, has this been a thread through all of your other books and you just felt you needed to call it out? Or what was the instigator for, for this particular book? Oh, well, book? That, that's a great question. I, I thought you were talking more generally. Yes, it was very specific. Um, I, uh, I have been very optimistic about women's leadership but uh, and, and, and watched women make enormous strides in the 25 years I've been in this. But around about 2008, it was very clear to me that women were not at the very top level making the kind of progress that one might expect. So I began a conversation with the the woman I ended up co-authoring this book with, Julie Johnson, who's an executive coach. And Julie and I were fascinated to try to figure out what was that key impediment that kept women from making it to the top level. And so we had a number of conversations about it. And then separately, each of us found a major piece of research that had been done by global org- global data organizations on uh, the question of women's vision. One was at INSEAD, which is sort of the Harvard Business right. School of Europe. Uh, now, there was a big coaching uh, company. And both found that even though women's ability to collaborate and negotiate and build relationships with customers and clients and lead from the center, all those things were highly valued uh, by senior leaders in organizations, most of whom were men, these senior leaders in organizations tended to feel that where women had a weakness was in terms of vision, that is, big picture, long-term thinking, Um, and that this perception that women lacked vision, women lacked the big picture, Uh women weren't strategic thinkers about their organizations, was really a key impediment to women making it to the very top positions. So Julie and I wanted to know what that was about. As the author of The Female Advantage, there was no way I was even going to entertain the idea that women were deficient in vision. But it did occur to me that maybe there's something different in how women see things, how women view the world. Um, When you think about what your vision is, it's really three things. It's what you notice, uh, what you value about what you notice, and then how you connect the dots, the story you tell yourself based on what you notice. So what Julie and I decided to do, and it was the first time I'd worked with a co-author, we had a fantastic collaboration, was to really drill down using case studies, interviews, but also some of this fabulous new neuroscientific research that's out there, and try to define what is the difference, what are some differences in women's vision, how women actually see things, and how are those either not being valued by organizations or not being articulated by women 
in a strong enough way that they become viewed as leadership capacities. So that was, it was this recognition of making this sort of aha connection between the fact that women weren't making it to the strategic level in the kind of numbers that you might expect at this point um, here in 2008 where we were there uh, when we started thinking about this book and the whole question of vision. It was fresh. No one had looked at it in both right. the studies. They just sort of dropped it. They said, well, women aren't perceived as visionaries. End of story. We wanted to know why and what women could do to more powerfully translate their vision. You know, I, I think it's interesting when when you take a look at kind of the physical side of vision, and, and this is totally near and dear to my heart because I'm in, in the very, very uncomfortable eight-week process between having worn contacts for 40 mm. years and going to LASIK, which you have oh. to go through this process of wearing glasses, and your your eyes change over the course of the six or eight weeks, however long it takes your eyes to stabilize. And, and so I have gone, uh, again, from being able to see very, very well with contacts, but deciding that I, I you know, just wanted to be done with that and just be able to see when I get out of bed in the morning, and and you know now I've gone through this issue of of uh, wearing uh, progressive lenses. And yes. as you talk about these things and and how women see, um, you know I think that there's a parallel back to our own eyes. And I I have uh, gone through a tremendous appreciation for vision itself in in the physical mm-hmm. sense. And I am wondering because I think that there are many people who perhaps, and again, I'm going to stay on the, on the physical side of this for a minute, and then we'll come back in, into uh, you know, the, the metaphorical use of, of the term vision. Um, but there are people maybe who've worn glasses for many, many years, and they don't really appreciate what contacts would do for them and, and the crispness that you can get from having that lens so very close uh, to where you are. And, and uh, again, sometimes even through this process, I have to take my glasses off so that I can't see at all so that I can appreciate how well I see even now. Uh-huh. So going back to the the uh, the metaphor of vision for women and men in business is I'm wondering if we ever have that um, experience like going to the eye doctor where we actually check our vision. And and I'm wondering in in the uh the scientific side of of what you uh, and your co-author Julie did in producing this book, whether there is that test of vision and seeing that, that women and men actually have a different baseline and, and what are the components of that? Because you talk about uh, women being able to articulate what they see and that very basic uh, being able to, to really speak that vision is, is a huge difference between men and women. It's 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 true, and you're right on target. What you say about the glasses is very interesting, because in the course of doing this research, one thing that I learned is that 70% of all the information your brain processes comes through what you physically see, comes through your eyes. Mm. So it really does start with what you see. What the what the several neuroscientists. Uh, whose work we drew from in this book, what we learned from them is that women's capacity for noticing. Now, remember, the three components of, 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 what you, of your vision are what you notice, what you value, and how you connect the dots. So right. it starts with notice. 
that women women's noticing women and men's attention operates in different ways in that women tend to notice a lot of things at the same time with their attention operating really like radar scanning the environment picking up lots of information at one time and and with the the neuroscience what they actually when they do functional MRIs of the brain in operation, they can see this, that women's brains are lighting up in a lot of different areas as they're scanning the environment, whereas men's attention tends to operate much more like a laser rather than a radar, focusing in on one thing rather than continually scanning the environment and wanting to drill down on that one thing and really analyze that. Um, whereas women are picking up a big range of cues and noticing emotional context. And this really (laughs) matters because that laser-like focus, that being, um, uh, having your attention on one thing is often privileged and regarded as a leadership behavior in many organizations, whereas the radar capacity can be seen as being all over the map. (laughs) I think that is it, it it is so right on and and I've got a a 13-year-old son and a 15-year-old daughter and yesterday uh my husband had been out of town all week and he came home and he he was a little bit upset with my 13-year-old son for some of his grades this week and uh some of his behaviors and attitudes and uh after all of this had kind of blown through and my and my husband when he comes in you know, kind of has to unload all of that and then he's fine right yeah. but my son hasn't exactly figured that out because he's like the laser vision on 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 dad and on what he wants to do and so he came to me and i was sharing with him that he might be able to go swimming because we had been heating the pool all week and i said but sergey go and tell your dad thank you for heating the pool and and i i gave him like this short script of what he needed to say and he said Mommy, I didn't realize I had to talk in scripts. And I said, Sergey, no, you really don't. But the thing is, you've got to see the big picture. And it's you're right, it's this radar thing. And he's like, really? <laughs> I said, yes. <laughs> and so this morning he told me to have a good day and to have fun practicing my communication skills. <laughs> but I thought it was really funny hearing from a 13-year-old boy this whole notion that all he knew was what he wanted to do and that dad was somehow an impediment to that, right? And exactly. and he couldn't sit back and, and, and plan and plot to some extent. I mean, because we, we women do a, a fair bit of plotting to make sure that, that you know, the outcome is, is a, a good and positive outcome. But I just found that really funny and, and especially talking about this whole issue of female vision because I was seeing, uh, you know, the end-to-end uh, right picture and and the desired result and picking up on the emotional context yes, and all the clues yes. and and everything that was going on rather than that just that one picture and I think at home we we can see this demonstrated I I remember once um, you know sitting and we were watching a football game or Super Bowl on TV and at the end my husband said you know oh do you want me to do the dishes and I said did you happen to notice that I did the dishes and cleaned up the entire kitchen including sweeping during the commercial, and he didn't notice. He actually didn't <laughs> notice. He was watching the game. So right. it, it, it can play out at home, but, but what's, what's important and what we're focused on in the book is really how this plays out at work and how women can get, uh, on one hand, um, be, be penalized or not viewed as leaders, 
Right. Uh, we have some great examples in the book of where that happened, where a woman was sharing her observations of, of what she thought was important, noticing the emotional context, noticing, for example, in a meeting that the two lead partners were at each other's throats and that the uh, you know the, the whole project was probably going to grow blow up because of that, um, and being told, you know, no, you're just supposed to notice what the numbers are in the presentation, don't get off the point. Uh, stick with what's important. So, so uh, on one hand, women can often have that capacity in them, either shut down or they can learn in their organizations that that's not a valuable that's not a valuable skill you're bringing. So they can lose confidence in it right, themselves. Right. The organization loses a lot of of of, uh, of information. So what we really wanted to do in the book was, on one hand articulate that broad spectrum notice as a leadership skill, as something that is really important and needed um, in organizations uh, and that provides a lot of information uh, that can be very important and very necessary. Uh, and the, on the other hand, we also wanted to be able to help women say, you know, here are some ways you might present that information that would be more powerful or more calculated to gain traction with people who have a real laser-like focus and a laser-like noticing capacity because it's it's a two-way street. It's both being able to recognize that this is a valuable skill but being able to articulate it in a way, as we say, so that laser noticers can get it. And you also talk about using it as a distinctive point of branding, and, I, and I'm presuming yes. that you're talking about branding of yourself. Yes, exactly. That what you notice, if you want to brand yourself as a visionary, someone with vision, the most effective way to do that is to build your brand on something that you most authentically notice and advocate for that, and build allies around that, and declare your intention to act on that, and be present for that. That is the way, that's the most powerful way that a woman can brand herself as a visionary. But that starts with recognizing and valuing the importance of the information that you may pick up through your capacity for radar-like or broad-spectrum notice, Mm -hmm. rather than letting that get shut down in you. And one thing we also found uh, that was fascinating in the book is that women who had that capacity very strongly and yet were in organizations that didn't value it and 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 therefore they they found themselves suppressing that capacity or saying, well, I'll never mention anything like that again. One of the consequences for that was they really suppressed something that was authentic in themselves, and they therefore began to feel less authentic at work, and that caused them to lose energy and motivation. So this is really important. It's important for you to brand yourself as a visionary. It's important for you to be able to demonstrate the skill that you have in a way that's authentic so that you'll be able to build a satisfying and sustainable career for yourself based upon what your real skills and your real capacities are. And it's also important for your organization in terms of information. Right after the book came out, 
uh, Julie found a, uh, an interview with Jeff Immelt, who's the CEO and chair of GE Corporation. I think it was in uh, Pro, uh, in Fortune. And he was asked, what is the number one leadership capability that GE is going to be hiring for and developing um, in the post-Jack Welch era? And he said the ability to see around the corners, to be able to tell what's mm. out there and put together a big comprehensive story based on the real complexity of the global economy and the relationships within it. And 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 both Julie and I were struck by thinking, how are you going to see around the corners unless your organization is good at valuing, at understanding, and at acting on information that comes from broad spectrum or, or radar-like noticing? You can't get there with just the laser, laser noticers. Right. You know, I want to back up just a little bit because the the first part of your book talks about the value of female vision, and we've talked a little bit about what women see, why uh, what women see matters. But uh, one of the chapters you've got there is something called early warning signals, and I, yeah. I, I don't want to skip over that because I sense, uh, because you called it out in a separate chapter, that there's something, some nugget there that we need to get. Ah, uh, yeah, that was that really uh, struck me. One of the we we started gathering this research based on these studies at the end of 08. Well, we all remember what was happening at the end of 08. The global economy was melting down. And one of the things that was striking about that, and Michael Lewis, who's probably the the primary writer, he wrote great books, The Big Short, lots of books about the financial crisis. And one of the things Michael Lewis said uh, in, in a major article he published uh, was the thing that struck him most about the financial meltdown was how little role women played in it. And as we went back and looked at some of the companies, uh, the corporate entities that were most implicated in the crisis, in the meltdown, that had the biggest problems, one of the things we noticed was that in many of them, and this was true in the governmental organizations, but also in the big private sector companies like Citibank, one of the things we noticed was a big exodus of women in the couple years, of top women in the couple years leading up to the crisis. And off in many cases, those women were um, had been warning, what's going on here is unsustainable. This data is not adding up. We can't, you know, we can't figure out how what you say is true, you know, in, in terms of the value of mortgage derivatives. We can't see how that actually is true. You know, I know the data, you know, the algorithms you've come up with, they're saying that to their leadership. I know the algorithms show that, but we don't see it, and you saw it at the Federal Deposit Insurance Company, a corporation here, a federal agency. Uh, You saw it across the board. It was a real theme. And I was reminded, my background was in uh, classics, and I was reminded of the classic story of Cassandra, who was the daughter of a, a, a Greek king and who kept warning of a major impending war uh, mm-hmm. that was coming up uh, for the entire Greek civilization if they didn't change their ways on something. And she was never listened to because she had crossed one of the gods 
um, and not fulfilled his wishes. So he had given her the gift of foresight, that is, that she would be able to see events before they unfolded, but that he cursed her that nobody would believe her. And I thought that is such a fascinating metaphor for the role a lot of women played in the financial crisis, that they were warning of uh, problems. It even goes back to 2002 when Time Magazine had the whistleblowers from Enron and WorldCom uh, and the FBI on their cover. You know, they were Cassandras. They were women who saw... Uh, real problems and tried to bring them to attention um, in part because they had a bigger picture of what was going on. They weren't just buying, well, this is what the algorithm says, so focus in on that, um, you know, have laser vision, you know, put blinders on and, and, and go with the program. And they didn't. And they they were, it was their fate not to be listened to. And we felt, you know, in in healthy organizations, we need an ability to bring that perspective in so that women don't continue to be in this Cassandra uh, role, warning of uh, impending problems, but not being heard. Right. Very interesting. So um, part two of your book moves on to the elements of the female vision. We've already spent a significant amount of time uh, talking about this whole issue of broad-spectrum notice and that yes. that, that really is the core differentiator. Um, the next chapter within that section talks about satisfaction day by yes. day. And, yes. and again, this this fascinates me because it implies that that is not the way that the male psyche works and that their vision uh, doesn't map out uh, to that same pattern. Yes. What we found is women don't just notice things differently. They often analyze uh, things differently, and they often value work in slightly different ways. We did a, a big data study um, that we uh, rolled out through Harris Interactive trying to look at similarities and differences in how men and women defined and perceived and pursued satisfaction in the workplace. And one of the, we found a couple, there were some real similarities. Um, it, men and women took great satisfaction in leading teams, uh, in, in being valued for what their skills were, uh, in collaborating with colleagues, uh, in being recognized for their achievements. There were real areas of similarity and overlap. But we found a couple really significant uh, differences. And one was that women tend, I'll I'll just give you a couple of them. One was that women are more likely to measure success against their own standards rather than competitively, so that that it's not always a a sort of zero-sum game. Well, uh, you know, I... I did better than 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 he did or than she did, and therefore I'm on top. That's not how they measured it. It was usually I feel satisfied with the job that I did. So that was pretty fascinating because so many organizations assume that people are going to be motivated by being graded against their peers or their colleagues mm-hmm. and that that's going to be very strongly motivating. And what we saw although there's some pushback on that generally now because there have been some disastrous examples, Microsoft being one, of putting in peer uh, peer grading and, and really finding all it did was 
get people competing against one another rather than than competitors. But what we saw is that's really not a fabulous way of motivating women, um, that women are more focused on their own achievement. The other thing that we found was that women tended to place a higher value on the experience of every day. That is, if they were enjoying their experience uh, at work, they were motivated and engaged by that rather than always being motivated by what's the next thing, where am I going, uh, what's the future of this, you know, how is this playing out in the future. Um, And they really took an intrinsic satisfaction in what they were doing. And if they did not, if they were experiencing their everyday as um, far too much stress, too much anxiety, too much pressure, too too many angry people, too many uh, clients who hated the product, whatever it was, if they were experiencing the quality of their day as as, as really low on a consistent basis, then they began to not place such a high value on that job, even if it was very rewarding in terms, uh, uh, in, in financial terms, or in terms of position. And so that what what we would often hear from women who had left uh, positions of real significant influence and, and very high financial reward, what we heard when they left it is they would say, I decided it just wasn't worth it. And what they meant was, you know, it was worth it if you look at it in terms of right. the amount of money they were making or, you know, the first-class travel to whatever, but it wasn't worth it because they they looked at it in terms of the impact on the quality of every of every day, and by that I mean the ability to form satisfying relationships, the ability to 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 some degree control their own pace, and therefore feel that they were really being able to do a good job and had the mindfulness and the uh, the the serenity and the skills to be able to to actively fulfill. So it was right it, it, and and that was, was the one thing different. that jumped out at me Sally because when I read the intro uh to the book it it actually talked about that and I thought you know what I left corporate life 18 years ago for that very statement. Yeah. Um that I was in a an extremely Male dominated, and, and if you've ever worked with Frenchmen, it, it's the uh, epitome of, of male domination. Although I, I think uh, there are certain Asian cultures that, that rival the French, even. Um, but but for me, uh, I look. I added everything up, and you're right. Uh, I knew I was doing a great job. I knew I was making an impact. Uh, they were offering me, uh, you know, a sea level role in a company that we were rolling out of the parent that was going to go public, and I mean everything was going right. But at the end of the day, it didn't add up for me. Right. You know, it's like, is this all there is? And the paycheck was great, and the future was great, but every day really was not. But every not. day, exactly. And that's again with organizations, they tend to assume that motivation is all carrot and the stick. Stick with it now um, because you'll get to this level. 
stick with it now because you could be making 250k in five years. Stick with it now uh, because you you know of, of the possibilities. And what women seem to be saying is, I want a job that is you know challenging, uh, right. gives me an opportunity to use my skills. But that that it isn't miserable day after day after day just so I can get somewhere. So it right. seems that there's there's this kind of focus on on every day um, and what what does this mean for me every day, and that's that's very different. And again, you know, mot- uh, organizations have to look uh, based I think on this research, and that's one reason I've been you know working so hard to put this information out there into the marketplace organizations if they're serious about retaining women and i believe that they're becoming more serious about it they're they're getting pushback from their customers and clients you know why we we notice you have very few women we know that you know when you have a general counsel at a corporation and a law firm and, and it's a woman and a law firm sends nine men to pitch a piece of business she notices um, when all those partners are men, and she'll say something. She'll say, right. you know, I notice you're sending all men. Uh, you don't seem to be very good, doing a very good job of uh, having getting women partners. And they'll say, well, we have a retention problem. She says, well, look at that. So I think organizations are getting more serious about addressing this brain drain of, of women that, that, that has been ongoing. Um, but in order to do that, they're going to have to really make a shift and think about how do we motivate people in terms of satisfaction every day rather than just, you know, stick with it, it's horrible now, but there'll be a big payoff down the road. Right, and, you know, and I really do get that, but I, I'm wondering if we don't have to appeal to that laser focus which says that, you know, profitability is king and and again show them because there is clear empirical evidence that says that when you have more women in C-level positions and positions that report to C-level positions and more women on the board your company is more profitable so it yes. is worth it to learn these things yes and, exactly uh, Again, some of the other things I want to uh, draw upon from from uh, the outline of the book is you talk about the importance of enlisting allies yes. based on the power of your vision. And I think that, you know, this is the one thing that when you start seeing the warning signals in your own company or your own situation um, and, and hear those words that, that your vision isn't valued, how do you enlist allies to, to change the perception? And are those allies other women? Are they men or are they a mixture? They, I, I believe that they have to be a mixture. Um, we've had so much talk about mentoring and sponsorship, and and a lot of those then become programs that are run out in organizations by HR. And I think they're very valuable for women and have been very helpful. And I think that distinction between mentors and sponsors is helpful. But at the end of the day, your career is really going to uh, ref- is going to allow you to act on what you see if you build allies, and that is people at every level that you can enlist who share your vision or who share a part of your vision and who want to be part of what you're trying to do. One of the things that I have learned um, over the 25 years I've been researching women is that although women are great at building relationships, 
they're often not great at leveraging relationships. That is, using relationships in a way that gets them to where they want to be and helps them achieve what they want to achieve and to act on their vision. They, you know, they'll often say things like, well, I don't want that person to think I'm using them or I don't want that person to think I don't really value them as a friend and I just, you know, I'm only building this relationship because I have a purpose. If you have a strong purpose and you believe in that purpose, um, then you want to leverage and enlist people. And it can be people at every level. It can be your peers. It can be you can notice somebody who seems to, once you've articulated what your vision is, you know, I have a vision that our organization, say you're a law firm, is going to attract lawyers who give clients wonderful experiences in working with us rather than just attract lawyers who have degrees from the best colleges but may be absolutely unbearable to work with and end us up in a lot of litigation. Uh, Say that's your vision. Um, Then you can find people in the organization who you Mm -hmm. think would, 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 would be, be on track with that and who you think could share that and say, you know, one of the things I'm trying to do here is this, and I had a plan, I had an idea that we, uh, you know, I, I was going to, I mean, one of the ways you can know how well uh, a potential hire treats people is how they treat the, the administrative staff when they come in for their, for their interviews. And I'm, I'm going, I was going to ask some of the administrative staff what their experience had been. Um, is that something you'd be interested in? One of the things that really struck me about this allies business um, was when I had a chance to spend some time interviewing and talking with uh, Sharon Watkins, who had been, we might remember, the whistleblower at Enron, uh-huh. uh, the yes. woman who had tried to go to Ken Lay, uh, who was the CEO, and say, you know, we've got some real problems here. And I asked her, if you could have done anything different, what would it have been? And she said, I would have tried to talk to other people in the organization who I knew I recognized or I knew something about them personally that I would have understood that they would have come on board with me in what I was trying to do, which was really draw the CEO's attention to what was going on here. She said there were people in this company who understood that. There were people who recognized it. Um, she said, but they, I, I never reached out to anybody. I tried to do it alone. She said, and, and I think that the reason that I wasn't able to really intervene successfully and had to therefore you know, end up becoming a whistleblower had to do with the fact that I did not enlist allies. And she said, that was my biggest learning, my most powerful takeaway from that. It didn't have to be. It could have been more successful, she said, and furthermore, it could it didn't have to be so absolutely brutal for me right. if I had had allies. And I think that, that that there's there's something really important. I'm not talking about whistleblowing. I'm talking about um specifically, but there's real learning from what Sharon Watkins went through that if you have a strong vision, if if it's something small that you're trying to achieve, that you want to achieve personally, that you want to achieve in your organization or in your unit, find people who support that and then present it in a way that's likely to engage them. This is what I'm trying to do. Here's something I think you could do that would help me, and here's how that would benefit 
you, and oh, by the way, is there something I can do for you? It's that quid pro quo, that back and forth, that being a resource to one another in the service of something larger that I think is something that women don't do enough of, uh, can be very powerful at doing if they get comfortable with it. It's sort of a business development mindset, you know, of, of what's good for you is good for me. Uh, and I think it's something that if we can get better at doing or commit to doing or even, you know, get a peer coach to work with us at getting better at doing that, that can make us much more powerful in acting on our vision. Wow, <laughs> that, that's a, a, an awful lot of insight. Uh, I, I think you've covered so many points there. Why don't we um, shift gears to the the uh, part three of the book yeah. um, and, and talk about prom- profiting from the female vision. And again, you've touched on, on pieces of this in, in your story, particularly about Enron and and uh, the next chapter is about acting on your vision, which clearly yeah. the woman, uh, you know, who who saw the problem and acted as the whistleblower, uh, she was acting on her vision, but not in a way that was well received. Um, yeah. Then, then you you wrap up this part three of the book about creating the conditions, and uh, again, I'm I'm assuming we're talking here about creating the conditions for success, and and how you can actually profit and leverage. Uh, the vision, you know, that is God-given to us. We've been given yeah. this amazing talent, and uh, we do have to fit into the social fabric that includes uh, both men uh, who have that laser focus, the few uh, men, and because there are some who have that broad-spectrum uh, vision as well. And then we've also got women, and and I, I want to make sure that we mention this. We've got women who maybe don't have uh, vision or uh, like me with my physical vision, they you know they never went and got it checked, and they don't know that it's bad. And and often they're the ones who end up giving those who have amazing vision, uh, you know, some of the bad name because you've got uh, an executive who has had experience with a woman who didn't uh, have that foresight, and so they've lumped everyone in the same bucket. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, you know, I think that that and it depends on organizational cultures have the capacity to either nurture or really repress uh, some of this broad-spectrum um, uh, radar noticing capacity. And I think one of the the jobs of really in, in engaging in organizations that need to be able to see around the corners is to be able to work to free that capacity in everyone because um, there, there are men who have that capacity as well. There are women who have less of that right. capacity. This is, you know, we're, we're, we're talking in generalizations here, of course, and they're, you know, it's more developed in some women than the others. But I think that, that, that what I'm learning, and, and a lot of this learning has taken place after the book has come out because I've had the opportunity to work in so many organizations and speak in so many organizations about the work and listen to people's stories that, yes, you you begin to change the culture uh, as a woman when you start to be, be very clear in articulating your vision, but you have to be always aware of the need to be able to frame that in a way so that more laser-like noticers can understand what you see and have right. the potential to say, oh, I get what you're talking about. And I often see women 
doing, you know, that requires, as you said, starting with the data points, not saying we could be doing a lot better around here if women were blah, 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 but saying here are the statistics, you know, 35, you know, organizations that have, you know, a, a higher retention rate, of of women at senior levels have 35% higher uh return on investment and return on equity um right. in a given year you, you start with the data whatever you're going to do you're going to get more buy in from laser noticers if you start with the data if you um present your 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 point of view in that kind of in a very focused frame and if you leave the backstory for later, I see, and boy, have I done this myself, I often <laughs> see women, you know, go in, in and say, I want to tell you how I got to this idea. You know what? You've probably lost them already by saying that. Set the idea. Declare the idea. Give the data for the idea. And then say, if you're interested in how I got to this idea, I'm glad to tell you at some point. But but don't start with the story or right. the narrative or the conversation you were in that spurred this thinking, because that can really confuse a laser uh, listener. Um, so I think being able to not just articulate your vision, but to be conscious and aware of how to articulate that for people who have a different noticing framework can be very, very powerful. And then, well, and I think you've hit it right on the head because, you know, that is the mistake that we've made is we think that they do want all the detail. <laughs> and really yeah. they just want the bottom line. And and actually I, I find that characteristic. I, when I look at my parents, um, my mother, uh, you know, was a very, very compassionate woman, uh, you know, just loved everybody and everybody loved being around her. And I always wanted to be like her. And then I found out as I grew up that I was way more like my father. And he was very, very bottom line oriented, even though he was in a kind of a touchy-feely career because he was a pastor and a, a missionary. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think we we get off on the wrong foot, just like my son did with my husband yesterday, of, of not trying to communicate from the other person's perspective and exactly. and you know we expect them to learn about us uh you know and I, I think back to John Gray's book about uh you know men are from Mars and women are from Venus but unless we <laughs> learn how to speak the language of of the place where we are <laughs> um yeah. you know we're destined to be very lonely and and to feel uh extremely isolated and to and to be Cassandras you know who notice yeah. things but aren't able to get them recognized. And that's not what we want. We want to be part, and we need to be part, of that strategic decision-making process. And in order to do that, we need to help our organizations understand to really value what we have to bring. But we also have to help our organizations become culturally and structurally more comfortable places for women to make real contributions. Because if if we're not able to help in that effort, our organizations are going to continue to lose women and they're going to consign themselves in in being in the lower 40, uh, 35% in terms of return on equity because they're not going to have enough talented women in decision-making roles. Exactly, exactly. Well, Sally, this has just been fascinating. And uh, again, the title of the book is 
the female vision, women's real power at work. And uh, as I can think you can tell from uh, from Sally's comments this morning, this is a very practical, very research-focused book. And and really, if you, if you are specifically struggling uh, with this whole issue of, of having your vision not valued, then you want to make sure uh, that you get a copy of this book. Sally, can you tell folks how they can best contact you? I know you do public speaking, and, and if they need uh, a speaker at an event or, or just would like to follow you on social media, how can they find you? Uh, uh, email me at sally at sallyhelgeson.com, and or it, there's a button also on my website, which is sallyhelgeson.com. Uh, so I'm, uh, and the uh, Twitter is hashtag Sally Helgeson. So uh, it's um, one of the advantages of having a name like Sally Helgeson that there are not many others out there, but you you know that <laughs> exactly. one, Shiki. <laughs> and it's and uh, Helgeson is all E's. There are all no E's. O's in Helgeson. Yeah. So no Norwegian spelling. Uh, for those of you who are listening and driving and perhaps don't uh, have access to the Internet at the time that you're listening to the show. Well, Sally, it has been delightful to have you as our guest, and uh, I cannot wait to uh, to read this book and to really dive into uh, some of the things that I know I haven't done well over the years. And I have to tell you that as somebody who's been out of corporate America for, for 17 years, every time I hear about the challenges uh, you know, inside companies, I am so glad that I'm not there. <laughs> I know that's an awful thing to say, but uh, you know, I mean, and I've been a consultant to corporations for the last 17 years, but uh, I'm even shifting away from that because uh, you know, you you continue to run into some of those same things, and so I've moved to being truly entrepreneurial and and just going off and working on the things that I want to work on, which has been great fun. But uh, anyway, I, I so appreciate you sharing your insights with us, and this this book is a, a very very rich resource uh, for women leaders. And uh, you know, don't don't miss the importance of of understanding vision. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been a wonderful wonderful interviewer. Oh well, thank you so much, Sally. Well, I hope you have a great day, and uh, again, we will be back next Friday and uh, have a great show for you. you. If you would like to know more about our schedule, you can look at www.executivegirlfriendsgroup.com, and you can also listen to our past shows and look at uh, things that are coming up on blogtalkradio.com slash solutions with a Z on the end live. Thank you so much again, and have a great weekend. Goodbye.